Today's scripture is from Romans 16, 17 through 27. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard, you, heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality, and I, the whole church, here, enjoys enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother, Cordus, sends you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Awesome. Thank you. Here, I'll take that. All right. Huh. Oh, this goes here. Give me a second. Give me a second. I'm, I'm, I'm adjusting some stuff. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm making a habit of screwing up the slides every week now. So that's what you got to deal with. Um, I put the verse in, and I was like, no, we're going to finish it. We're going to go all the way. And then I didn't add the second part. But she read it, and we're going to cover it anyways. You'll read it anyways. Um, So here's what we're doing. We are, oh, first off, welcome. Good to see you. Um, uh, My name is Tommy, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, we're studying the book of Romans. We just started it last week. And uh, we're doing it backwards. We're starting at the very end to get some contacts, and then we're going to go back to, uh, we're starting on, on chapter 16 uh, last week and this week. We're wrapping up 16 this week, and then we're going to go to 12, uh, 12 through 15, and then we're going to go to 9 through 11, and then we're going to go to 1, and we're going to end at chapter 8. And there's a whole reason why I'm doing all this, and, and as we go along, you'll sort of pick up on it. I, I think there's a lot more context that is available to you when you read the book backwards. And so if you would like to learn more about the whole concept of like how to read the book of Romans in a way that is actually helpful, um, there's a book by, by Scott McKnight. It's called Reading Romans Backwards. Simple title. That's what it's called. And that's what you do. And you read that book, and, and he sort of lays out sort of a lot of the things that I'm laying out for you today. He's um, a main piece of the source material today. If you're looking for commentaries, I know some of you have reached out. So if you haven't, just hang out for a second. Um, but if you have, uh, I, there's, a, there's a commentary on Romans by, um, oh man, uh, there's a few of them. Sarah Lancaster uh, wrote one. She's brilliant. And, and there's another one by James Dunn, which is great. And, uh, and uh, Scott McKnight's Reading Romans Backwards. Do those three. And also, um, there's a whole collection of commentaries all in one book by a man named Hoyt. And it's African-American theology. And he covers the book of Romans as well. So it's called... What's it called? I'll get back to you on what it's called. But it's by Hoyt, H-O-Y-T. All right, so here we go. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this passage and, uh, and keep going. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would meet us here. I pray that you would uh, somehow bring us to a place where um, we recognize some things that we need to submit to you, some things we need to let go of, some things we need to sort of lay down, 
um, and trust you with. Uh, I pray that we would be a peaceful people, a people that not just respond peacefully, but, but are actively making peace uh, with those around us, with enemies, with, with friends, with brokenness, uh, with uh, anyone who needs it in our community. I pray that right now as I, as I speak, that you would be with me, that you would remind me of the things that I've studied this week. Speak to us individually where we're at. Speak to us collectively as a group of people. Give us a picture of what it, of what it means to be the church this morning so that we can more accurately uh, be that. Every single time we come together, I pray that you would remove something that has gotten in the way. Uh, and, and lay the path out for us. Thank you, God, in your name. Amen. Okay, so, um, the same guy that wrote uh, Reading Romans Backwards wrote a book called A Fellowship of Difference, McKnight. It's, uh, there's, we have a copy of it in the lobby, and you can look at it. But in this book, he tells, he gives a very good guide on how to make a salad, uh, which is very important to know. And there's three ways to make a salad. There's the American way, what he says, and, and then he calls it what he calls the weird way. Uh, and then there's the right way to make a salad. And so he goes into great detail. It starts in chapter two. Uh, and it's a book about sort of how to make a church, how the church is supposed to function, how it's supposed to work. And he says, most people start off by, uh, they, most of us make salad the American way, right? We get a bunch of lettuce, throw in a bowl, maybe some olives, maybe some tomatoes, a lot of croutons, some cheese, and then like dressing, lots of dressing. And you just swirl the whole thing together so it all tastes just like dressing. Because you're going to take all these different things and we're Americans and we like everything to be the same and, and, uh, and, and predictable. We want every bite to be predictable and the same. And so we coat everything. We try to coat everything in one culture. We're a very sort of coercive kind of culture. And this is how we make our salads. It's a coercive salad. And so you bring all the ingredients and you just coat, coat them all in dressing and that's your salad. And every bite tastes exactly the same. Um, and that's, that's how you make an American salad. And then there's the weird way that some people make salads where they take all the ingredients and they separate them onto the plate. And these are the kind of people, psychos, that don't use dressing at all. And they eat salad, just, you know, veggies, different, just one veggie at a time differently. And um, some kind of weird fad I've seen lately. And then, and then there is what he calls the right way. And I'll read his description. He says... Uh, the right way to make, make and eat a salad is to gather all the ingredients, some spinach, kale, chard, arugula, iceberg lettuce, if you must, and then you chop them into smaller bits and you cut up some tomatoes and carrots and onions and red peppers and purple cabbage uh, and some nuts and dried berries and sprinkle some, I don't know that word, percorino, I don't know, Romano cheese, uh, and, and finally you drizzle over the salad some good olive oil, expensive olive oil, which somehow brings out the taste in all the little bits and pieces. And it brings it all out. He, and, he, and he says all this because he's trying to tell you what a church is supposed to be uh, and how a church is supposed to act. And, and, and here's sort of the line I was, I'm trying to get to. He says, the earliest Christian churches were made up of folks from all over the social map, but they formed a fellowship of different tastes, a mixed salad of the best kind. So there's your landing the metaphor. Um, and, uh, and this is what I see when I look at the, at, at the book of, of Romans. When you look at the church, uh, and so here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to pull out some of the people and show you some of the different people that are mentioned at the end of the book. There's a whole list of names that, 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 that were read greatly last week. Um, and, uh, and I want to look at who some of these people were. And then I want to look at sort of, there are two closing arguments that are made in the book, which you haven't read yet, uh, and which we're going backwards. So we're starting, there's two main points, and we're going to look at those two main points. And, uh, and somehow, you know, we're, we're not into like the heavy meat of Romans yet. I'm sort of still setting the, uh, 
the, the parameters of the discussion of sort of uh, who these people were and what they're writing about. And so we'll get to all that meaty stuff of Romans in a bit. We need, we need to understand the plot first. Um, so let's go to the Roman house, Gaius's house, where it would have been written. Remember, like I said last week, they would have, Tertius the scribe, a member of the church, uh, would have been there writing the letter while they're gathered around talking and sort of riffing on ideas, trying to get philo- philosophical, uh, trying to um, sort of theologize about what does the church in Rome need to hear to help them with their struggles. And we haven't even like laid out all the struggles yet. We're going to get there eventually. Um, but they're writing this collective letter to them together. Now, the, the, earliest, ho- the earliest churches gathered in houses. There are over... Uh, 13 verses, uh, there's more than 13 verses in the, New, in the New Testament that describe the gathering of the church, and it always lays it out in houses. Once in a while, there were public gatherings in like the portico and stuff like that, um, but that was different. The, the, the main meat of what the early church did happened in, in people's sort of living rooms, in these Roman villas, in these central areas. Uh, here are 12 different references of, of the people meeting house to house and the different houses that they met in. Um, this list comes from uh, Dan White Jr., um, and uh, he's been putting together, putting together all sort of like theology books on, on house churches and stuff. He's a good resource. And there are at least five house churches in the city of Rome that are being written to. So we, we find ourselves in the city of Corinth with the Christians there and Paul and Tertius writing. And they write this letter and they send it to Rome. And we're going to talk about how it got there and what happened when it got there a little bit more this morning. Uh, so, but there are five house churches in Rome uh, to whom Paul and, and the church in Corinth is writing their letter. And it's likely because... Of, of her role as the courier, but Phoebe, uh, the woman we're going to talk about in a few minutes here, um, it is her job to go to these house churches and to deliver this letter to all these house churches. Um, I just noticed all my notes are gone. Oh, well, I'm going to keep going. I, just noticed, I have some notes, but half of them are gone. That means it's going to be a surprise. <laughs> Love surprises. Uh, <laughs> this happens like, I, uh, can we talk about the new iOS? Like, I don't... <laughs> I, I just, this is like the fourth time this has happened. Um, Steve Jobs will be rolling over in his graves. Okay, so uh, there are at least five house churches. I have a list of a few of them here. Um, the house churches are designated. The way, the way you locate them in the book is because they're, they're mentioned either by, by house or by family or by the phrase with them, like so-and-so and and the Christians with them. This is, signifies that these are small house churches. So many of them would have actually lived in the same building, in the same structure, house, uh, as a household. Um, you will see letters uh, that Paul writes where sometimes he mentions leaders in the church who are also heads of entire households. There are elders in the church. And so you'll see, actually in First Timothy, you'll see these commands that like, hey, uh, a good leader in the church is going to be able to manage their household well. Um, today we kind of read that and we say, well, I mean, I know several pastors that have quit their job after their kids rebelled. You know, like that's a thing that happens in modern day. But, but the problem is we're actually reading that without context. The idea is these are, these are sort of people that are running economies in a, like a micro economy in a house. There's a whole slew of people working all together on this little house economy and they're gathering as a church. But he says, if your leader is just terrible at running the house, they're probably going to be terrible at running the church and you should probably have someone else in the house run the church. All right, it's not like setting up all these laws and rules. It's describing sort of what you're looking for. Um, And so they would have met here in a place like this. We have a list of some of the house churches here. Um, We have the household of of Prisca, Priscilla, and Aquila in in uh, 16.3-5. And I have some notes here. This is likely 
sort of the, the leading house church, if you will. This is the one that they all sort of probably answered to. It's probably the first one that the letter went to, and, and this household uh, led by Priscilla's, Priscilla's most of the time mentioned first, Prisca or Priscilla, however you want to say it. Uh, and so she's likely the head of this house church and probably the head of the household at the time. And so she is the one that they would meet with and, uh, and, uh, and make a plan of how to get the message to the rest of the house churches there. And then you have the residents of Aristobulus. Um, and we have, I have uh, some research that we've done that, that, that basically says that this is likely um, the grandson of Herod the Great who died in the, in the, in the 40s. Um, and whose household continued. Um, and there are probably some people that came with them, and, and there's people that, there's like Bible super nerds that are like study this stuff and write about it, and they look for hints and pieces out there in the writings of the church fathers and stuff. Um, and then you have the residents of Narcissus. We're going to talk about this guy in a bit. Um, uh, perhaps the home of, of the deceased Roman administrator under Claudius. I think this is probably who this was, and we're going to talk more about that. And then you have the residents of Esencritus, I have no idea if I'm saying that right, and it doesn't matter. Um, and they have the residents of Philolog- Philologus, or just whatever, uh, and Julia and others. So you have these specific households that are there together that are mentioned. Um, households were a huge deal. Everyone desired to be a part of a household. It's, it's community. Nobody wanted to live alone. It was considered a curse to live alone. There's even Bible verses that talk about, woe aren't to you sort of wealthy people who buy house. In a, in a giant field separated from everyone else and then you buy the field over there and you buy a field over there and you link field to field and house to house until you live alone on the land. That's your curse, to live alone on the land. Uh, the early Christians believed and the early Jewish people believed as well you should live in community, um, you, should, you should take care of other people, you should give your body to a community to serve them as they give themselves to you as well um, and to be there for their life so that if one falls you can pick them up. Households were a huge deal. And so... Um, at least one of these households, if not more, of the, more of, than one of them, were connected in very strong ways to the empire of Rome. They had members who lived in the households of very powerful people, probably even the emperor uh, themselves. So I want to talk about some of these people here. Uh, let's see. What is this verse? Uh, oh, yeah. Okay, here we go. So I want to talk about Phoebe first. Um, Phoebe is probably the most important character in the book. Uh, she is the courier. If you know anything about couriers and what they did in the early world, uh, in the ancient world, um, couriers um, were charged with, res- uh, with, the, with the responsibility of explaining letters. She would know everything about the letter, like I talked about last week. She wasn't going there to just preach the letter in the way Paul wanted. She was going there to preach the letter as exactly how Paul would. His same mannerisms, his same face. She would probably sort of wear some of his garments and, and try to like look like him. And, and she would, she's there as his ambassador. And she also is well-versed in all of his theology. She would be answering questions. One thing you will see as we go through the book is you're, there are dozens and dozens of questions. Dozens of them. And they're, they're, they're all like sort of lined up back to back to back to back. These are probably questions that the church in Corinth dealt with and that she knows how to answer. And she is, is sort of bringing them up as if Someone in the back would ask this question. I know you would ask this question, and you would ask this question. This is your answer, and this is your answer. So this is all well planned out. This church knows the other church. Um, And we have an ancient fresco that I wanted to show you. But first it says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in the way worthy of his people and to give her uh, any help that she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Um, 
So there's these ancient frescoes that paint some of these women um, in, in their work that they were doing. We have this one here, which some argue is, is Priscilla. I actually think it's Phoebe. Um, I think there are, there are hints in it in the way some people describe the painting and in real life some of the colors that are used. That sort of hints that this is, Pris- that this is Phoebe. Um, either way, I'm indifferent. There are other paintings of Priscilla that I just say, this one's Priscilla and that one's Phoebe. Um, because who knows? Um, and so she uh, is listed as a deacon in the church. The word deacon in the early church is, is, um, is the same word in the New Testament, uh, whether the person is a man or a woman. So there's, I want to I just put this out there. There is no such thing as a deaconess. All right, that's just something we made up to otherize women and, and get them out of the group. Um, deaconesses aren't a real thing. They're deacons. That's what they are. It's a spiritual servant in the church. She's called a deacon because she exercised um, a ministry or a service in the church. Deacons were charged with visitation of the sick and the poor. Uh, they were charged with financial oversight, running of, of ministries, um, and teaching, all kinds of things. She did not have a husband, and there's no indication anywhere that women... Um, could, could teach and lead only if they were connected to a male leader in the church. People argue this today. There is zero evidence of that in the early church. That's just something we make up sort of to make ourselves um, feel better sometimes about stuff. But there are all kinds of women that are in leadership in the book of Romans in, in the, both the city of Corinth and the ancient city of Rome. Uh, and so at some point, we're going to have to deal with that. Yes, there are some cities he writes to where there are not women in leadership. There's specific reasons for that, and we can know those, and we can study those. Um, so let's move on to uh, Priscilla. Priscilla is a teacher of scripture and theology. It says this in Romans 16, 3. It says, uh, greet Priscilla and Aquila, that's her husband, uh, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, not only I, but all of the churches uh, of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. So she is the head of a church that meets in her house. She is mentioned first. That means she's given first honor in the ancient world. That meant something. Um, it says that she is um, sort of, okay, so hold on. Let me, let me go back here. Acts 18, it says several things. It says that she uh, explained to Apollos, the way of God. Acts 18, remember, tells us that. It says that she is the one that was responsible for bringing many people into the faith. Um, Priscilla's name is, is almost always given first. This is unusual in the ancient world. Uh, this means, uh, basically, it leads most scholars to believe that, that she was a leader in the ministry. We see that in Acts 18, uh, verse 18, verse 19, verse 26, Romans 16, 3, 2 Timothy 4. There's all kinds of places where she is put in authority over other people in the church, uh, including men. And so we have uh, this woman, Priscilla. She knew her theology she knew her Bible. Uh, she knew it so well that she led Apollos from, uh, from this John the Baptist faith. Remember, Apollos, you meet him, and he, he has this idea that he's, he's been baptized under John the Baptist. And she is the one that gathers him sort of uh, uh, with the church and, and, and brings them to an understanding of Jesus and who John was serving. And she leads all these church leaders uh, to Christ. Um, she's an incredible woman. Um, and she is listed among Paul's co-workers. Um, Paul's, this is a way of saying, basically, she, she preached the gospel. She carried on pastoral work in the churches, and she risked her life. Her and her husband both risked their lives um, to establish churches in different Roman cities. And uh, that's a huge deal. Um, a lot of honor attached to her name. Um, this is likely an ancient sort of uh, display fresco of her as they sort of understood her probably a couple hundred years later. Um, and then you have another woman. Her name was Junia. Junia is, 
is the most fascinating story. And I've taught about Junia ton of, ton of, tons of times because it's, to me, it's one of the most interesting things that, that, that we see in church history is this woman. Um, she's an apostle above other apostles. We have her name here, greet Andronicus and Junia. So Andronicus is her husband, uh, and Junia is the wife, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. So again, they also suffered with Paul in prison. It says they were outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, Junia was in prison with Paul. Uh, he calls her outstanding among the apostles. She was recognized uh, by the apostles um, to be a woman and a leader in the church. Uh, and there's this ancient writing from, from the late 4th century by St. Chrysostom. Uh, that has come to light really in the last, has been sort of read widely in the last sort of several decades as the details of this woman and who she was have come to light. Because it, it turns out we thought she was a man for, we were told she was a man for the last, you know, 1700 years or so. Um, and there was this sort of selective operation sort of in the church to change this woman uh, to wipe away her identity because Paul calls her an apostle in the church. And early on, it became very political uh, to, to keep sort of the, a patriarchal sort of order in the church. And this woman, her entire gender was erased from history. She's made into a man. They changed her name into Junius, which is a man's name. Uh, and so after a certain point in church history, you have her being referred to as a he all through the text, all through history, up until you get to about, um, really, the 1950s. <laughs> and then you have people talking about how, you know, there's a lot of ancient writings that actually mention that this, this was a woman. I'm like, what do you mean? And then they start doing more work and more work. And we have this writing from, uh, Chrys- uh, from Chrysostom um, in the late 4th century. And here's what he says. Um, To be an apostle is something great, but to be outstanding among the apostles, just think what a wonderful song of praise that this is. They were outstanding on the basis of their works and virtuous actions. Indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was even deemed worthy of the title of apostle. And we begin to see these writings. We're like, oh, this was a woman? What do you mean this was a woman? And they start reading and they start understanding, oh, this was... This is Andronicus's wife. This is who she was. And she's ranked equal with the other men in the group. And whatever her role was, we have to firmly conclude that one of the foundation apostles of Christianity was a woman and a wife. And she's a leader in the ancient early church and considered such a great leader that she is literally called an apostle, which means she probably met the risen Jesus uh, and probably sat at his feet a few times, maybe one of his outside ring of, of disciples even. Um, and there was a, there, there still to this day remains a collective effort in some parts of evangelicalism to hide her identity. Some of your Bibles, if you have them, uh, specifically I want to like point out like the ESV and stuff, they will have these little markers, these little notes that will, that will lead to a footnote at the very bottom of your page and it will say, it will sort of drop a hint uh, and create a little bit of, uh, of doubt about who this woman was and it will say, some early manuscripts believe she was a man. There are not early manuscripts that mention her as a man at all. Um, it, in fact, uh, we know f- for, you know, for sure, for 100% positive that until recent times since the Middle Ages, she was largely been assumed to be a man, but despite oh, there being over 250 examples of Junia the woman in the ancient world, there's not a single mention of, of a man named Junius in the ancient world up until the third or fourth century. This was a woman. And she was a leader in the church. And she was an apostle. And she was in charge of men. And until the church can 
begin to admit these little simple little facts, we're going to have a hard time grappling with the bigger problems that we've actually caused in the world as well. Um, and so there are, there are still versions of the Bible today that try to cast doubt on Junia being a woman. But Junia was Jewish, and so she would have been counted among the Jews who endured exile. So she's been probably kicked out of Rome uh, 10 years earlier, and she's been through incredibly harsh, difficult things. And now she has come back. And though she is a woman and a leader in the church uh, and a wife in one of the households, over the head of a household, um, she would have been counted in the book as one of what Paul will describe as the weak because she is Jewish and she's probably poor um, and she probably is, is coming back with the rest of the more conservative fundamentalist Jewish Christians into the church and discovering that it has been taken over by sort of the more liberal Gentiles. And so this is one of the things that they're going to have to deal with. So she's one of the weak, the adunatoi in the Greek, as Paul calls her. And next I want to show you one of the strong. His name is Narcissus. Um, we see him in Romans chapter 16, verse 11. It says, greet those in the household of Narcissus um, who are in the Lord. Now, this guy, we know who he was, very famous. His, his inscription even survives uh, with us to this day. Um, Well-known, uh, very powerful man. Um, he literally has his own Wikipedia page. Um, and so Narcissus is mentioned as one of the two households uh, where some, but apparently not all of the people in the house church, are followers of Jesus. So he even in his household has non-believers living with them. And this is sort of our uh, theology of sort of the dotted circle with house churches. This is the place where non-Christians watch Christians live in community and submit to each other and, and submit to the spirit of God around the table and serve each other in the way that Jesus serves us. And this is one of the examples where this would have been seen. There are unbelievers living amongst them. Um, no doubt watching them live in this way where they're gathering talking about the things that they're struggling with, that the world is asking of them, um, the ways that they're trying not to become Roman, that they're trying to become more like Christ, and the world is watching them do this, the, the rest of the people gather, and they're watching them sort of discern together and say, I think this is what the Spirit of God is leading you to do, and I will walk with you down this path. And they're discerning together with the Spirit of God, uh, their life together. So, um, uh, scholar, there's a New Testament scholar named Sarah Lancaster, who I mentioned earlier wrote a, uh, a commentary on the book of Romans. Um, and she points out that there was, uh, this is likely one of the, uh, known in history as one of the freedmen um, named Narcissus who worked for Claudius, the emperor, the very emperor who exiled all of the Jews from Rome. And so you have this guy living in the, in, and serving in the house of the emperor. Eventually the emperor is assassinated and Nero takes over. And I want you to imagine how, how dangerous this would have been now. For Narcissus and his family, house church, his house church there, to then be enveloped and swallowed up by the house of Nero, who would end up burning down half of Rome and blaming the Christians and, and then wiping them out and killing them. So you have some very dangerous situations. You have people going through incredibly hard things in this early church. It's not just surface level morality stuff. This is like, what do I do? How can I be strong enough to remain in the church and practice the disciplines in the face of, of, of great danger in the empire. And so this is one of the strong, very powerful. Um, lots of people listen to Narcissus when he talks. Um, and most of the scholars assume that this is that, heart, that, that Narcissus from the house of Claudius. Um, okay, uh, next up, I think this is our last one, Erastus. And I talked about him just a few weeks ago. 
from the, he lived in the city of Corinth. He was a house church leader there. Uh, Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cortus send you their greetings. So Erastus, again, his name also survived. Very powerful Roman. Uh, we have his name right here. Erastus, we have the text uh, that I'll put back up for you. It, this, this particular plaque is on the ground uh, in the ancient ruins of Corinth. And you can stand there and you can, you can read it and you can look at the ruins surrounding it. It's incredibly uh, like moving to understand that this man was a wealthy leader in the city of Corinth. He ran the, the public works department of the city. And he was so rich that he himself paid to have the whole place paved. And so this particular um, plaque, it says, Erastus in return for his a dealership, which is like building, like for building stuff, uh, a dealership paved at his own expense. Um, so what we have in, in the church in Rome, in the church in Corinth, the same thing. Very poor, suffering, lowly, dishonored Jewish people. Very powerful, strong, wealthy, high-honored, high-status Romans. And they're all in the church together. Some are slaves, uh, some, are, uh, some are masters, some are uh, women, some are children, some are immigrants. Some are uh, from, from all different parts of the empire. Some are Jewish diaspora from different parts of the empire, and they come together. And, and they come together um, to sort of understand what is this new world that God is building? What is this thing that, that, that God is going to plant here in this space? How are we to understand it? How are we to live it out? And how does it change our understanding of our role in society? Whether you're the head of a household, that makes you a master. And whether you're a slave, and you have books about this, written about the dynamics between the masters and the slaves in the early church. Books like Philemon, where he says, hey, um, that person at the bottom that you received as a slave, you should receive them as a brother and equal. And so these things are being con- uh, confronted and they're slowly sort of moving in an awakening to the, this new world that God is building that they could have never imagined before. And, and we get to verse 17 and we see the crux of the entire letter um, in, in the middle of this empire. Here's what we read. And this is the part that I believe I neglected to put. Uh, no, I got this part. Okay, here we go. Uh, I urge you, brothers and sisters, imagine Phoebe saying this, at the end of, of all the arguments that have been made that we haven't studied yet, haven't read yet, but we get to the very end, and based on all the arguments that have been made, this is the request that Paul has for them coming from the mouth of Phoebe in this room. She says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions, who put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings that you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Uh, The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now, uh, there's, this, there's sort of these grand ideas here that we are living in the empire of Rome head by, led by the dragon, the serpent, the beast, and God is going to crush that. And the way that he's going to do that is not through might and power and violence. It's through, it's through people all over the empire giving up their identity of who the, the world says that they are and coming together and looking at each other as family and as brothers and submitting to Jesus as Lord. And this is how God is going to crush it, the whole thing. And all the division and all the, all the pain, all the suffering and all the oppression and, and, and the separations and the unevenness of the empire, it's all going to be crushed and it starts here. But in order for that to happen, you have to remove all of the things that the empire is injecting into the church, that are trying to inject into the church. You have to free yourself of these things. 
Brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions among you. This is how they break you down. This is how they stop what we're doing by creating these divisions among us. Um, and so this is a letter about division, about how it enters into the church, into the community. Um, and there are, I mean, there are, there are two main parts in this. We're going to look at the second one in a second. The second one is the doxology. I'll go ahead and put it up here. Um, this is the part that, that I didn't actually project earlier that I forgot to put up there. Um, this is the doxology at the very end of the book. Now, the doxology is, is fascinating. So a doxology is sort of, it's, it's a list of all the things that the writer desires for them. It's, it's, all, it's, it's sort of a list of prayers that, that we make and that we call out and we pray. And, and Paul writes them a doxology. And, and there's a lot of things here that, like a prayer list, all the things that, that, that Jesus is able to establish in them according to sort of the good news that Phoebe is bringing them. Uh, and there's three things really. To be established in the gospel. Like, to be established. Like planting a church is is difficult because in order for a group of people to come together, they can't. It's not like making a salad, right? Like it's not like making an American salad where you take these random ingredients and, and they're mostly sort of the same and then you smother them all in a dressing and make them all exactly the same and then you eat your salad. No, like what he's calling them to is, is, is very, very different. He says, despite all of your differences, your, your wild unevenness, some of you are almost homeless and some of you are almost kings and you're in the same room together. And you have to find a way to be established together. You have to learn to look at this other person that you have nothing in common with and believe nothing the same with and look at them somehow as your brother. And this is the foundation that they have just spent 15 chapters laying for them. And this is what we're going to study. This is, this is what, at the end of the argument, at the end of the whole thing, you have two commands that they feel based upon everything that they have just said. There's two things they can ask. First off, don't listen to the people who are trying to divide you. Don't listen to them. Stay, just stay away. And second, I want you to be established. I, I want you to see each other, to link together as a family and establish yourselves as a family, as, as sort of a huge household together, a household that would never form in Rome or anywhere in Judea. Like the house churches were this bizarre sight to see the way they ordered themselves, slaves getting up and teaching and leading Women leading the, the studies and women being educated in the houses. I mean, this is another thing that a lot of the household elders did. The, the, um, the house church leaders, the heads of the household, they would, they would make sure that the people in the house are being educated, learning to read and write. Nobody else was doing this. The Christians were doing this, and they became an incredibly bookish people. They wrote all kinds of letters back and forth, and they read tons of letters. And, and this is what sort of kicked off the whole revolution, bringing people in high and low together at the table, educating them equally, getting them to see each other as equals, and sending them out to do work together. Um, and it was, this, it was this groundbreaking thing in the ancient world. Um, and so perhaps I think the most interesting part of this is, uh, is as, um, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are two more things that, that, that Paul has for them to understand. Uh, to understand the mysteries of God. This was something that the Jews were meant to understand in the ancient sort of uh, Old Testament. They're always talking about, and the mysteries of God will be revealed to you, and the mysteries of God will be revealed to you. And Paul says this again, and he's saying it to all of them collectively, not just to the Jewish people. He says it to all of them, uh, especially the Gentiles. He almost like emphasizes it to them. And then he says that you would have faith that brings about obedience. He says, we've heard about your obedience. Now I want you to have faith because it's going to bring about a whole other kind of obedience. And I think one of the most interesting parts of this whole ending of the letter is this is the first time that we see Gentiles being put first before the Jewish people. 
This has not been done. And the Jewish people would never put Gentiles before themselves when talking about their relationship with God and God's people uh, and what God is doing in the world. It was always, and all through the letter, you will see, to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. To the Jews first and then the Gentiles. There has always been this long-standing tradition all through the scriptures, all through the Old Testament, um, where God says, hey, you are my people. He's talking to the Jewish people, the ancient Israelites, and he says, whoever is with you, I'm with them. Whoever's against you, I'm against them. And you read this and you're like, well, why would God favor one group of people over another? That's a bit racist and this and that. And I hear people make these arguments. Um, I want to point something out. This is what we do as well to assist oppressed people in the world. The Jewish people were incredibly oppressed. They were a small, wandering tribe, no land, no place to call their own. They were in fear of everyone around them. They tried to act brave the best they could, but everyone around them was strong and powerful and, and, and creeping in on them, and they were terrified all the time, but they trusted God would take care of them. And God says, hey, you suffering people with powerful people all around you, pushing you down and keeping you oppressed, um, I am a God of justice, and whoever is with you, I'm with them. Whoever's against you, I'm against them. And, and this is how we talk too. Like to be with people, to stand shoulder to shoulder to people who are struggling, who are in difficulty, who are being oppressed, who are being come against. Like you stand with them and this is what this is about. So all through the text you will see this message goes to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. To the weak and then the strong. To the weak and then the strong. So there's a way that we talk about this and it's all these little bits of pieces that when you put them all together like a puzzle and you stand back, you can see the picture of Romans, of what God is doing. Um, and so this is a sign of sort of um, that the argument would have taken root. The whole book of Romans starts off at the very beginning in chapter one. And this is going to be a spoiler alert. In chapter one, it starts off with Paul talking specifically to the Jewish people. Okay, Paul's Jewish. These are his people. He's a Pharisee. He's, he's like one of the most uh, spiritual, sort of religious, he, he one of the most spiritual religious people around. He's, he's in the highest sect of Judaism, uh, the most honored, the most puritanical, if you will. Like, they're known for doing everything right. And Paul writes to the Jewish people first. They have a very proud identity in the first century temple period of keeping themselves holy and being different from everyone else, and they're very proud of themselves for it. And this fits in the ancient world, and this is how you would sort of carry yourself, proud of who you are, who your people are. And Paul writes to them first, and he starts off by talking about those disgusting Gentiles. So when you read chapter one, this is what you're reading. And you can picture Phoebe, and she starts off, and she starts the letter, and she starts talking to the Jewish people, and she starts saying, it's sort of like a political rally, right? How people describe the other side. If you really want to rile up a crowd, you say something extremist, and people start cheering, right? You yell things like, oh, they're all baby killers. We're like, yeah, they're terrible. Oh, they're all gun nuts. Yeah, they're terrible. They're all racist. Yeah, and we just like, we like to say things that paint an entire group of people in these ways that make us go higher and them go lower. And this is what Phoebe starts off doing. And she starts talking to the Jewish people, these disgusting Gentiles. The way that the, the food that they eat, the, the, the way they practice sexual immorality, the way that they do. And they just, he, she goes off on this tangent and she just blasts them and blasts them and blasts them all the way to the end of chapter one. And you got this, you'll, you'll have this sort of crowd of, of Jewish Christians and they're standing up and they're shouting and they're cheering and they're like, yes, that's what we said when we got here. We look around at how these Gentiles are living in our church. We've been exiled. We come back and this is what we find and you're living like this. And so she joins them and they're all bashing these Gentiles. And then you get to chapter two and you read the very beginning of it. 
she turns around and she says, and when you judge them, you yourself are guilty. Just as guilty as them. She wants us to see, and Paul wants us to see, the way that we separate ourselves from each other and why we do and the role that we believe it plays in our heart and in our life. And they're gonna, this letter is going to confront this piece by piece by piece by piece. It's going to deconstruct it. It's going to take it all apart and break it all down. And at the end of the, at the, at the, end of the letter, the way, that, the way that the Jews are honored at the beginning of the book that is exactly how the Gentiles are honored at the end of the book, in chapter 16, at the very end. When you read this um, sort of doxology, if you will, uh, this, this idea, all these things that he wants them to have. Uh, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all the Gentiles might come in to the obedience that comes from faith. He says, it was never just about you. Your whole journey as the people of God, as the Jewish people, all of your exiles, all of your suffering, everything that you went through, all the laws that were placed upon your head, all of the ways that you were commanded to live different and stay clean. Do you know why, do you know why God did all of that? So that they would come in. It was never about you. It was always about someone else. And it was your gift to go through and endure, just like the sufferings of Jesus, to endure and suffer so that others could find salvation. Most of us are perfectly fine enduring and suffering as long as we find really good things on the other end for ourselves. But the argument that Paul is going to build is that your life is not your own. That the Christian life is not about being an individual. It is not about how I am doing as an individual at all in my spiritual life. Especially about how, it's especially about how we are doing as a people and as a church. How far are we willing to go to bring salvation to the people who desperately need it? How, how much are we willing to endure? How much are we willing to submit to each other on the path and on the journey? Uh, how am I doing in that mix of others called the church, the salad, if you will? Am I, am I trying to just code over everything and make them all the same, more like me, so that, so that their flavor is more like my flavor, and then, and then sort of that's how we'll find unity? No, that's the Roman way. That's why it's the American way as well. Rome is very similar to America. Uh, America is very similar to Rome in the ways that we do most things. When you look at the way these powerful people are, 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 are spinning stories about each other and, and, and trying to maintain their honor through all of this is all very Roman. This is all very, very Roman. The way we identify with these leaders and, and sort of go to war, this is Roman emperor stuff. This is all the same. And we think the way that we find peace is by coding everyone with the same thing and making everyone look at it and gather them all in. And now I'm gonna argue with me, you into my position. But the path that Paul will offer is a path that Paul believes best represents the gospel. There is some debate. I mean, I, I want to be totally honest. There is debate among, when you, when you read the words of New Testament scholars, they don't read the Bible the same way as most other people. There's some debate about whether or not this actually worked. Whether or not Paul's argument for bringing unity in the church worked. Paul believed it would. I think it did because I think that's why we have the letter. I think it was saved. I think it was kept and, and, and dispersed and passed because of the work that it did, not just in the city of Corinth, but in the city of Rome and other places. I think this was traveled around all through Rome and everyone gathered together and they read it and they said, 
yeah, I, I can't keep shunning these people like I have been. I can't, based on what I know now about the gospel of Christ. I can't. I must see them as my brother and my sister somehow. And, and by the end of this thing, Paul is going to ask the question, what are you willing to give up? What privilege, what rights, what power, so that you can remain in, in community with the people that God has brought into your life? What are you willing to do? Are you willing to be Christ-like? Are you willing to give up more? Or are you only willing to be American or Roman and pick your tribe and fight and war against the others? Do you understand that God is doing something new and different that does not fit the mold of anything else that is happening? Calling a people out to live in a way that is Christ-like, that is wise, that lives off wisdom that lasts thousands of years to show the world a new way. I mean, I always bring up the G.K. Chesterton quote, like, the only thing we've left untried, we've tried a lot of things. The only thing we've left untried is actually Christianity. We've just not tried it. We've just not tried it. We're not interested in things like that. And so I picture Phoebe when we get to this part, and this is where I'm gonna wrap it up. I picture Phoebe when she gets to this part. This is the very end of the book. And you would have, I, I feel like at some point we need to turn all the chairs inward so you face each other and then like sort of pretend we're two different sides, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And I picture Phoebe standing between them both as they face each other. And I think at this end that she walks over and she stands with the Gentiles and she looks at her Jewish brothers and sisters and she starts going into this, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel. The message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mysteries hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the commands of the eternal God. She's speaking in ways that sort of like your story, all this prophets and the writings and all the mysteries, that's very, all very Jewish and God has has included the Gentiles now into your story. Can you look at them the same way you look at your own people? So that all the Gentiles might come to obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God of glory, uh, be, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. So she stands with them and she looks at her Jewish brothers and sisters because she's one of the Gentiles as well. And so she's talking and she's like, you guys are warring, you're tearing each other apart. You, because you're too fundamentalist and, you're, and, and you have all these rules that you're demanding that they follow. And you, because you're so liberal, you don't even care that people have conviction. And that they're trying, you're not even willing to help them live according to the convictions that they are convinced in their mind that they should live by. And you just want to mock them and break it all down and act like you're so free and strong. And we look at both sides and, 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 and they're looking at each other and they cannot find any common ground. And she stands there and she says, you don't understand. Everything that you have been through and everything that you even understand about yourself, the whole point of it was so that they would be brought in and made part of the family. And then she turns to them and says, hey, everything that they went through, you're so proud of yourself and your freedoms and, and your sort of like your, your liberal idea that you can live however you want. It doesn't matter who you offend. Like you're not, you're not taking the cross seriously. You don't have a cruciform shape. You don't have a cross-shaped life. And she says, everything that they went through, they suffered so much. It was for you so that you could be brought in. Have some humility. They're willing to change everything for you. Are you willing to change for them as well? Can this be reciprocal? Can we be family? Can we be brothers and sisters? And I picture her standing there like looking them in the eye. 
and asking him, are you willing to share your identity with us? Are, are, you gonna, are you gonna allow your envy and your jealousy that we have now been included? Are you gonna let that sort of drive you away? Can you, can you ble- let God bless other people through you or does God's blessing stop with you? Or can you let it pour through to these other people who desperately need it? Uh, I, you know, there's these questions at the end of all of this. And so like, uh, you know, if you want to continue to hate your enemy and look down on those who disagree with you, if you plan on creating sort of this safe bubble where you never have to deal with anyone who's different from you and your, your ideas are never challenged, if you plan on loving yourself and your people above all others, then you're just not going to like Jesus when you actually meet him. Because this is not what Jesus has ever done. He was a specific man from a specific group of people who were very oppressed. And he, you regularly see him loving his enemies and even healing their children and their servants, their slaves. He's healing them. He's in this world like doing something different than everyone else is. And that is the crux of the whole letter. What are you willing to give up? What rights and privileges are you willing to give up so that others can know love and and home and be family? What is it? This is how the letter ends. This is the, the, the ending of the argument. And now that we see all of this, now we are prepared with the context to understand, to go back to the book. So next week, we're going to jump back. We're going to start at chapter 12, and we're going to go from there. And we're going to get into some more sort of meatier stuff now that we have context, all right? Um, so if you need uh, any kind of, like, direction as far as, like, reading, if you don't fully grasp what's going on so far, I want you to have the context before we go. Because I don't want you to end up with a reading of it that ends up creating a terrible monster out of God, right? Um, so let's pray, and uh, if, if you need suggestions, feel free to email me, tommy at watermark.com, for if you need commentaries or whatever, I can uh, send you some links and stuff that are easy to grasp and read. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I pray that you would be uh, the center of this whole thing. I pray that you would uh, guide us through this and the difficult discussions that need to be had, the, uh, the ways that we need to shift and the ways that we need to change. Lay the path out, make it straight. Thank you for these people, these men and women who did this incredible work, this incredible thing that we carry on the traditions of to this day. I pray that we would see them in a new light, that we would have a deep appreciation for them and a thankfulness for the suffering that they endured so that we could have hope. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Thank you all. If you would stand and join with me, and we can end with the Lord's Prayer here today and make that our prayer on the way out. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace, all of you. Have the greatest Sunday you've ever had ever.